Chapter nine and ten of the Grand Babylon Hotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Grand Babylon Hotel by Arnold Bennett. Chapter nine. Two women and the revolver. You, you're only doing that to frighten me," stammered Miss Spencer in a low, quavering voice. "Am I?" Nella replied, as firmly as she could. Though her hand shook violently with excitement, could Miss Spencer but have observed it. "'Am I? You said just now that I might be a Yankee girl, but I was a fool. Well, I am a Yankee girl, as you call it, and in my country, if they don't teach revolver-shooting in boarding schools, there are at least a lot of girls who can handle a revolver. I happen to be one of them. I tell you that if you ring that bell, you will suffer.' Most of this was simple bluff on Nella's part, and she trembled lest Miss Spencer should perceive that it was simple bluff. Happily for her, Miss Spencer belonged to that order of women who have every sort of courage except physical courage. Miss Spencer could have withstood successfully any moral trial, but persuade her that her skin was in danger and she would succumb. Nella at once divined this useful fact and proceeded accordingly, hiding the strangeness of her own sensations as well as she could. "'You had better sit down now,' said Nella and I will ask you a few questions. And Miss Spencer obediently sat down, rather white, and trying to screw her lips into a formal smile. "'Why did you leave the Grand Babylon that night?' Nella began her examination, putting on a stern, barrister-like expression. "'I had orders to, Miss Rexel. "'Whose orders?' "'Well, I'm—I'm—the fact is, I'm a married woman, and it was my husband's orders.' "'Who is your husband?' "'Tom Jackson. Jules, you know, head-waiter at the Grand Babylon.' "'So Jules' real name is Tom Jackson? Why did he want you to leave without giving notice?' "'I'm sure I don't know, Miss Rexel. I swear I don't know. He's my husband, and, of course, I do what he tells me, as you will some day do what your husband tells you. Please heaven you'll get a better husband than mine.' Miss Spencer showed a sign of tears. Nella fingered the revolver and put it at full cock. "'Well,' she repeated, "'why did he want you to leave?' She was tremendously surprised at her own coolness, and somewhat pleased with it, too. "'I can't tell you! I can't tell you!' "'You've just got to,' Nella said, in a terrible, remorseless tone. "'He, he wished me to come over here to Ostend. Something had gone wrong. Oh, he's a fearful man, is Tom. I, if I told you, he—' Had something gone wrong in the hotel or over here? Both. Was it about Prince Eugen of Posen? I, I don't know. That is, y yes, I, I think so. What has your husband to do with Prince Eugen? I believe he has some, some sort of business with him, some money business. And was Mr. Dimmock in this business? I fancy so, Miss Rexel. I'm telling you all I know, that I swear. Did your husband and Mr. Dimmock have a quarrel that night in room 111? They had some difficulty. And the result of that was that you came to Ostend instantly? Yes, I suppose so. And what were you to do in Ostend? What were your instructions from this husband of yours? Miss Spencer's head dropped on her arms on the table which separated her from Nella and she appeared to sob violently. "'Have pity on me,' she murmured. 
I can't tell you any more. Why? He'd kill me if he knew. You're wandering from the subject, observed Nella coldly. This is the last time I shall warn you. Let me tell you plainly, I've got the best reasons for being desperate, and if anything happens to you, I shall say I did it in self-defence. Now, what were you to do in Ostend? I shall die for this anyhow, whined Miss Spencer, and then, with a sort of fierce despair, I had to keep watch on Prince Eugen. Where? In this house? Miss Spencer nodded, and, looking up, Nella could see the traces of tears in her face. Then Prince Eugen was a prisoner. Someone had captured him at the instigation of Jules. Yes, if you must have it. Why was it necessary for you especially to come to Ostend? Oh, Tom trusts me. You see, I know Ostend. Before I took that place at the Grand Babylon, I had travelled over Europe, and Tom knew that I knew a thing or two. Why did you take the place at the Grand Babylon? Because Tom told me to. He said I should be useful to him there. Is your husband an anarchist, or something of that kind, Miss Spencer? I don't know. I'd tell you in a minute if I knew, but he's one of those that keep themselves to themselves. Do you know if he has ever committed a murder? Never, said Miss Spencer, with righteous repudiation of the mere idea. But Mr. Dimmock was murdered. He was poisoned. If he had not been poisoned, why was his body stolen? It must have been stolen to prevent inquiry, to hide traces. Tell me about that. I take my dying oath, said Miss Spencer, standing up a little way from the table. I take my dying oath. I didn't know Mr. Dimmock was dead till I saw it in the newspaper. You swear you had no suspicion of it? I swear I hadn't. Nella was inclined to believe the statement. The woman and the girl looked at each other in the tawdry, frowsy, lamplit room. Miss Spencer nervously patted her yellow hair into shape, as if gradually recovering her composure and equanimity. The whole affair seemed like a dream to Nella, a disturbing, sinister nightmare. She was a little uncertain what to say. She felt that she had not yet got hold of any very definite information. "'Where is Prince Eugen now?' she asked at length. "'I don't know, miss.' "'He isn't in this house?' "'No, miss.' "'Ah, we will see presently.' They took him away, Miss Rexall. Who took him away? Some of your husband's friends? Some of his acquaintances. Then there is a gang of you. A gang of us? A gang? I don't know what you mean, Miss Spencer quavered. Oh, but you must know, smiled Nella calmly. You can't possibly be so innocent as all that, Mrs. Tom Jackson. You can't play games with me. You've just got to remember that I'm what you call a Yankee girl. There's one thing that I mean to find out, within the next five minutes, and that is how your charming husband kidnapped Prince Eugen, and why he kidnapped him. Let us begin with the second question. You have evaded it once. Miss Spencer looked into Nella's face, and then her eyes dropped, and her fingers worked nervously with the tablecloth. How can I tell you, she said, when I don't know? You've got the whip-hand of me, and you're tormenting me for your own pleasure. She wore an expression of persecuted innocence. Did Mr. Tom Jackson want to get some money out of Prince Eugen? Money? Not he. Tom's never short of money. But I mean a lot of money. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Tom never wanted money from anyone, said Miss Spencer doggedly. Then had he some reason for wishing to prevent Prince Eugen from coming to London? 
Perhaps he had. I don't know. If you kill me, I don't know. Nella stopped to reflect. Then she raised the revolver. It was a mechanical, unintentional sort of action, and certainly she had no intention of using the weapon. But, strange to say, Miss Spencer again cowered before it. Even at that moment, Nella wondered that a woman like Miss Spencer could be so simple as to think the revolver would actually be used. Having absolutely no physical cowardice herself, Nella had the greatest difficulty in imagining that other people could be at the mercy of a bodily fear. Still, she saw her advantage, and used it relentlessly, and with as much theatrical gesture as she could command. She raised the revolver till it was level with Miss Spencer's face, and suddenly a new, queer feeling took hold of her. She knew that she would indeed use that revolver now, if the miserable woman before her drove her too far. She felt afraid, afraid of herself. She was in the grasp of a savage, primeval instinct. In a flash she saw Miss Spencer dead at her feet. The police, a court of justice, the scaffold. It was horrible. "'Speak,' she said hoarsely, and Miss Spencer's face went whiter. "'Tom did say,' the woman whispered rapidly, awesomely, that if Prince Eugene got to London it would upset his scheme. What scheme? What scheme? Answer me! Heaven help me, I don't know! Miss Spencer sank into a chair. He said Mr. Dimmock had turned tail, and he should have to settle him, and then Rocco... Rocco? What about Rocco? Nella could scarcely hear herself. Her grip of the revolver tightened. Miss Spencer's eyes opened wider. She gazed at Nella with a glassy stare. Don't ask me. It's death. Her eyes were fixed as if in horror. It is, said Nella, and the sound of her voice seemed to her to issue from the lips of some third person. It's death, repeated Miss Spencer, and gradually her head and shoulders sank back and hung loosely over the chair. Nella was conscious of a sudden revulsion. The woman had surely fainted. Dropping the revolver, she ran round the table. She was herself again, feminine, sympathetic, the old Nella. She felt immensely relieved that this had happened. But at the same instant Miss Spencer sprang up from the chair like a cat, seized the revolver, and with a wild movement of the arm flung it against the window. It crashed through the glass, exploding as it went, and there was a tense silence. "'I told you that you were a fool,' remarked Miss Spencer slowly. "'Coming here like a sort of female Jack Shepherd and trying to get the best of me. We are on equal terms now. You frightened me.' but I knew I was a cleverer woman than you, and that in the end, if I kept on long enough, I should win. Now it will be my turn. Dumbfounded, and overcome with a miserable sense of the truth of Miss Spencer's words, Nella stood still. The idea of her colossal foolishness swept through her like a flood. She felt almost ashamed, but even at this juncture she had no fear. She faced the woman bravely, her mind leaping about in search of some plan. She could think of nothing but a bribe, an enormous bribe. "'I admit you've won,' she said, "'but I've not finished yet. Just listen.' Miss Spencer folded her arms and glanced at the door, smiling bitterly. "'You know my father is a millionaire. Perhaps you know that he is one of the richest men in the world. If I give you my word of honour not to reveal anything that you've told me, what will you take to let me go free?' "'What sum do you suggest?' asked Miss Spencer carelessly. Twenty thousand pounds, said Nella promptly. She had begun to regard the affair as a business operation. Miss Spencer's lip curled. A hundred thousand. Again Miss Spencer's lip curled. Well, say a million. 
I can rely on my father, and so may you. You think you are worth a million to him? I do, said Nella. And do you think we could trust you to see that it was paid? Of course you could. And we should not suffer afterwards in any way? I would give you my word, and my father's word. Bah! exclaimed Miss Spencer. How do you know I wouldn't let you go free for nothing? You're only a rash, silly girl. I know you wouldn't. I can read your face too well. You're right, Miss Spencer replied slowly. I wouldn't. I wouldn't let you go for all the dollars in America. Nella felt cold down the spine and sat down again in her chair. A draught of air from the broken window blew on her cheek. Steps sounded in the passage. The door opened, but Nella did not turn round. She could not move her eyes from Miss Spencer's. There was a noise of rushing water in her ears. She lost consciousness and slipped limply to the ground. Chapter 10 At Sea It seemed to Nella that she was being rocked gently in a vast cradle, which swayed to and fro with a motion at once slow and incredibly gentle. This sensation continued for some time, and there was added to it the sound of a quick, quiet, muffled beat. Soft, exhilarating breezes wafted her forward in spite of herself, and yet she remained in a delicious calm. She wondered if her mother was kneeling by her side, whispering some lullaby in her childish ears. Then strange colours swam before her eyes, her eyelids quavered, and at last she awoke. For a few moments her gaze travelled to and fro in a vain search for some clue to her surroundings. She was aware of nothing except a sense of repose and a feeling of relief that some mighty and fatal struggle was over. She cared not whether she had conquered or suffered defeat in the struggle of her soul with some other soul. It was finished, done with, and the consciousness of its conclusion satisfied and contented her. Gradually her brain, recovering from its obsession, began to grasp the phenomena of her surroundings, and she saw that she was on a yacht, and that the yacht was moving. The motion of the cradle was the smooth rolling of the vessel, the beat was the beat of its screw. The strange colours were the cloud tints thrown by the sun as it rose over a distant and receding shore in the wake of the yacht. Her mother's lullaby was the crooned song of the man at the wheel. Nella, all through her life, had had many experiences of yachting. From the waters of the River Hudson to those bluer tides of the Mediterranean Sea, she had yachted in all seasons and all weathers. She loved the water, and now it seemed deliciously right and proper that she should be on the water again. She raised her head to look round, and then let it sink back. She was fatigued, enervated. She desired only solitude and calm. She had no care, no anxiety, no responsibility. A hundred years might have passed since her meeting with Miss Spencer, and the memory of that meeting appeared to have faded into the remotest background of her mind. It was a small yard, and her practised eye at once told that it belonged to the highest aristocracy of pleasure-craft. As she reclined in the deck-chair, it did not occur to her at that moment to speculate as to the identity of the person who had led her therein. She examined all visible details of the vessel. The deck was as white and smooth as her own hand, and the seams rang along its length like blue veins. All the brasswork, from the band round the slender funnel to the concave surface of the binnacle, shone like gold. The tapered masts stretched upwards at a rakish angle, and the rigging seemed like spun silk. No sails were set. The yacht was under steam, and doing about seven or eight knots. She judged that it was a boat of a hundred tons or so, probably Clyde-built, and not more than two or three years old. No one was to be seen on deck except the man at the wheel. This man wore a blue jersey, but there was neither name nor initial on the jersey, nor was there a name on the white life-boys lashed to the main rigging, 
nor on the polished dinghy which hung on the starboard davits. She called to the man, and called again, in a feeble voice. But the steerer took no notice of her, and continued his quiet song as though nothing else existed in the universe save the yacht, the sea, the sun, and himself. Then her eyes swept the outline of the land from which they were hastening, and she could just distinguish a lighthouse and a great white irregular dome, which she recognized as the Kurzaal at Ostend, that gorgeous rival of the gaming palace at Monte Carlo. So she was leaving Ostend. The rays of the sun fell on her caressingly, like a restorative. All around the water was changing from wonderful greys and dark blues to still more wonderful pinks and translucent unearthly greens. The magic kaleidoscope of dawn was going forward in its accustomed way, regardless of the vicissitudes of mortals. Here and there in the distance she descried a sail, the brown sail of some ostent fishing-boat returning home after a night's trawling. Then the beat of paddles caught her ear, and a steamer blundered past, wallowing clumsily among the waves like a tortoise. It was the Swallow from London. She could see some of its passengers leaning curiously over the aft rail. A girl in a Mackintosh signalled to her, and mechanically she answered the salute with her arm. The officer of the bridge of the Swallow hailed the yacht, but the man at the wheel offered no reply. In another minute the Swallow was nothing but a blot in the distance. Nella tried to sit straight in the deck-chair, but she found herself unable to do so. Throwing off the rug which covered her, she discovered that she had been tied to the chair by means of a piece of broad webbing. Instantly she was alert, awake, angry. She knew that her perils were not over. She felt that possibly they had scarcely yet begun. Her lazy contentment, her dreamy sense of peace and repose, vanished utterly, and she steeled herself to meet the dangers of a grave and difficult situation. Just at that moment a man came up from below. He was a man of forty or so, clad in irreproachable blue, with a peaked yachting cap. He raised the cap politely. "'Good morning,' he said. "'Beautiful sunrise, isn't it?' The clever and calculated insolence of his tone cut her like a lash as she lay bound in the chair. Like all people who have lived easy and joyous lives in those fair regions where gold smooths every crease and law keeps a tight hand on disorder, she found it hard to realize that there were other regions where gold was useless and law without power. Twenty-four hours ago she would have declared it impossible that such an experience as she had suffered could happen to anyone. She would have talked airily about civilization and the nineteenth century, and progress and the police, but her experience was teaching her that human nature remains always the same, and that beneath the thin crust of security on which we good citizens exist, the dark and secret forces of crime continue to move, just as they did in the days when you couldn't go from Cheapside to Chelsea without being set upon by thieves. Her experience was in a fair way to teach her this lesson better than she could have learned it even in the bureau of the detective police of Paris, London, and St. Petersburg. "'Good morning,' the man repeated, and she glanced at him with a sullen, angry gaze. "'You!' she exclaimed. "'You, Mr. Thomas Jackson, if that is your name. Lose me from this chair, and I will talk to you.' Her eyes flashed as she spoke, and the contempt in them added mightily to her beauty. Mr. Thomas Jackson, otherwise Jules, erstwhile head-waiter at the Grand Babylon, considered himself a connoisseur in feminine loveliness, and the vision of Nella Rexall smote him like an exquisite blow. "'With pleasure,' he replied. "'I had forgotten that, to prevent you from falling, I had secured you to the chair.' And, with a quick movement, he unfastened the band. Nella stood up, quivering with fiery annoyance and scorn. "'Now,' she said, fronting him, 
"'What is the meaning of this?' "'You fainted,' he replied imperturbably. "'Perhaps you don't remember.' The man offered her a deck chair with a characteristic gesture. Nella was obliged to acknowledge, in spite of herself, that the fellow had distinction, an air of breeding. No one would have guessed that for twenty years he had been an hotel waiter. His long, lithe figure and easy, careless carriage seemed to be the figure and carriage of an aristocrat, and his voice was quiet, restrained, and authoritative. "'That has nothing to do with my being carried off in this yacht of yours.' "'It is not my yacht,' he said, "'but that is a minor detail.' As to the more important matter, forgive me that I remind you that only a few hours ago you were threatening a lady in my house with a revolver. Then it was your house. Why not? May I not possess a house? He smiled. I must request you to put the yacht about at once, instantly, and take me back. She tried to speak firmly. Ah, he said, I'm afraid that's impossible. I didn't put out to sea with the intention of returning at once, instantly. In the last words, he gave a faint imitation of her tone. "'When I do get back,' she said, "'when my father gets to know of this affair, it will be an exceedingly bad day for you, Mr. Jackson.' "'But supposing your father doesn't hear of it?' "'What?' "'Supposing you never get back?' "'Do you mean, then, to have my murder on your conscience?' "'Talking of murder,' he said, "'you came very near to murdering my friend, Miss Spencer. "'At least, so she tells me.' "'Is Miss Spencer on board?' Nella asked, "'seeing perhaps her faint ray of hope "'in the possible presence of a woman. "'Miss Spencer is not on board. "'There is no one on board except you and myself and a small crew. "'A very discreet crew, I may add.' "'I will have nothing more to say to you. "'You must take your own course.' "'Thanks for the permission,' he said. "'I will send you up some breakfast.' He went to the saloon stairs and whistled, and a negro boy appeared with a tray of chocolate. Nella took it, and, without the slightest hesitation, threw it overboard. Mr. Jackson walked away a few steps, and then returned. "'You have spirit,' he said, "'and I admire spirit. It is a rare quality.' She made no reply. "'Why did you mix yourself up in my affairs at all?' he went on. Again she made no reply, but the question set her thinking, why had she mixed herself up in this mysterious business? It was quite at Varines with the usual methods of her gay and butterfly existence to meddle at all with serious things. Had she acted merely from a desire to see justice done and wickedness punished? Or was it the desire of adventure? Or was it, perhaps, the desire to be of service to His Serene Highness Prince Aribert? It is no fault of mine that you are in this fix, Jules continued. I didn't bring you into it. You brought yourself into it. You and your father, you have been moving along at a pace which is rather too rapid. That remains to be seen, she put in coldly. It does, he admitted. And I repeat that I can't help admiring you. That is, when you aren't interfering with my private affairs. That is a proceeding which I have never tolerated from anyone not even from a millionaire, nor even from a beautiful woman. He bowed. I will tell you what I propose to do. I propose to escort you to a place of safety, and to keep you there till my operations are concluded, and the possibility of interference entirely removed. You spoke just now of murder. What a crude notion that was of yours. It is only the amateur who practices murder. 
"'What about Reginald Dimmock?' she interjected quickly. He paused gravely. "'Reginald Dimmock,' he repeated. "'I had imagined his was a case of heart disease. Let me send you up some more chocolate. I'm sure you're hungry.' "'I will starve before I touch your food,' she said. "'Gallant creature,' he murmured, and his eyes roved over her face. Her superb, supercilious beauty overcame him. "'Ah!' he said. "'What a wife you would make!' He approached nearer to her. "'You and I, Miss Rexall, your beauty and wealth and my brains. We could conquer the world. Few men are worthy of you, but I am one of the few. Listen, you might do worse. Marry me. I am a great man. I shall be greater. I adore you.' Marry me, and I will save your life. All shall be well. I will begin again. The past shall be as though there had been no past. This is somewhat sudden, Jules, she said with biting contempt. Did you expect me to be conventional? he retorted. I love you. Granted, she said, for the sake of the argument. Then what will occur to your present wife? My present wife? Yes. "'Miss Spencer, as she's called. "'She told you I was her husband?' "'Instantly she did.' "'She isn't.' "'Perhaps she isn't. "'But nevertheless, I think I won't marry you.' "'Nella stood like a statue of scorn before him. "'He went still nearer to her. "'Give me a kiss, then. "'One kiss. "'I won't ask for more. "'One kiss from those lips, and you shall go free. "'Men have ruined themselves for a kiss. "'I will.' "'Coward!' she ejaculated. "'Coward!' he repeated. "'Coward, am I? "'Then I'll be a coward, and you shall kiss me whether you will or not.' He put a hand on her shoulder. As she shrank back from his lustrous eyes, with an involuntary scream, a figure sprang out of the dinghy a few feet away. With a single blow, neatly directed to Mr. Jackson's ear, Mr. Jackson was stretched senseless on the deck. Prince Aribert of Posen stood over him with a revolver. It was probably the greatest surprise of Mr. Jackson's whole life. "'Don't be alarmed,' said the prince to Nella. "'My being here is the simplest thing in the world, and I will explain it as soon as I have finished with this fellow.' Nella could think of nothing to say, but she noticed the revolver in the prince's hand. "'Why,' she remarked, "'that's my revolver.' "'It is,' he said, "'and I will explain that too.' The man at the wheel gave no heed whatever to the scene. End of chapter 9 and 10